0: God is good. And all the time. Amen. You know, I I was listening to the praise team and and talking about being nervous. And it doesn't matter, like, who's up there or um, how little practice they have or if they've never played together. It always sounds so beautiful. It's kind of like when you tell someone, that's a wonderful outfit, and they say, oh, this old thing. (laughs) Nah. But it was, it's a beautiful time to be together and to worship. And as you see from the Lord's table today for communion, things are set up a bit differently. And you'll see this table for the next uh, five weeks after this Sunday, as we begin today a new sermon series called, uh, well, there's a slide right here, Dinner with Jesus. Could you imagine if you had the opportunity to sit across the table from Jesus himself, to be at a party with Jesus, to be at a dinner gathering and hear Jesus tell his stories and make his Jesus jokes that he was so good at, to to share a meal with him and to be in the excitement of the room. What kind of things would he talk about at that dinner party? What kind of questions would you want to ask Jesus? And we don't really have to imagine what this would be like, because there are several stories, many from Luke's gospel, that we will look at in this series that give us a glimpse into these party moments, these parties with Jesus, not just dinner, but real parties, and what kind of conversations Jesus actually had at those table fellowships. And hopefully we will learn something about hospitality, welcome, fellowship, And maybe even learn something that will change the way we invite others into our own lives as well. Before we come to this story from Luke's Gospel, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you as the host of the table today. The table is set before us with symbols of your body, and your blood. We ask, O Lord, that we would have hearts and minds that are not only open, but hungry for the meal that you have prepared. That we would have starving hearts and hungry minds to receive the word, the bread of life that you provide for us. And may that word indeed change us forever and ever, and ever, and ever. Amen. Back where I come from in North Carolina, in the U.S., a lot of people raised chickens in their backyard. This became especially popular during the COVID season when you couldn't necessarily go out and buy fresh eggs. People became obsessed. These backyard chicken farmers, These are not big industrial chicken farming. These are people with 10, 12, or 20 chickens in their own backyard and they collect the eggs. Uh, And so these people are a strange, strange people. If you meet someone from the southern United States and they tell you that they are a backyard chicken farmer or they have raised backyard chickens, be cautious. They're weirdos. They have a weird idea about the world, they're obsessed with self-sustaining practices, they talk about all kinds of health foods, they, they want to talk about their chickens incessantly, and they love to talk about philosophy, politics, and chicken poop. Maybe those are all the same thing for you, but they want to especially talk about all the things their chickens are doing and all the lessons they're learning on life from their little chickens. Their strange people, be cautious of them. So anyway, when I was raising chickens in my backyard, uh, I used to love to watch how they behaved. Because I learned so much about people and life from these chickens. For example, if you were to get a new chicken... Maybe you bought one or maybe you had a friend who gave chickens away. Chicken people are always trading chickens. It's like money. And so you bring it home and you have your area of the yard for your chickens. You can't just place the new chicken in with the old chickens because they will freak out they will get very upset they they don't know this chicken this chicken is a strange chicken a foreign chicken and they will avoid this chicken and talk about this chicken behind the chicken's back and then eventually at night when all the chickens come into the coop they won't let the new chicken in it has to sleep outside in the dangerous night And if that chicken's still there the next morning, then they get upset and they start all the hens come around closer and closer. And to me, it sounds like they're saying what? Like they're going like this. What? What, 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 what? What?" And this gets the rooster upset. And so he comes in and he says, I'm not having this in my chicken yard. And he starts to peck and to stomp and will chase the chicken away or possibly even kill it. So you have to first put the chicken in a smaller little chicken enclosure and put that in the chicken yard so they can see it but can't get to it and you leave it like that for a day or two or three or four until they get used to the new chicken and then they just see that chicken as a part of their chicken world, their chicken community, their chicken flock. Likewise, if you have a chicken that has a little tiny wound on it, even if it's a chicken they've known their whole lives, they will act much the same way. They'll start to talk about that chicken and watch that chicken. They do this funny little thing. And then they'll start pecking at the wound. And they'll peck and peck. And if you don't do anything about it, they will peck until there is a wound in that chicken that will never heal. You have to take it away, again, put it in an enclosure, in with the rest of them, because if you take the chicken away for two or three days, they forget who she is. (laughs) So she has to be seen, but safe, and you have to put medicines, salves, ointments, and heal the wound before the chicken can come back. If you don't understand the parallels between that and human nature, let me help you with this. First of all, we are so often afraid of anyone who is different. Anyone who is not a part of our little flock. We are afraid of the other, the strangers and the strange ones. And we keep our distance from them often because we are afraid of what they might think or believe. And likewise, this could be someone who is is from a different faith. The Muslim, the Hindu, or maybe the atheist. That's not what we are. So they must be scary, strange, different. And we keep them at a distance. Or perhaps they are coming from a totally different background, maybe they are part of the LGBT community. That's probably different. So does that scare us? Do we avoid them or do we even pluck, pluck and peck and peck and peck until we do harm? Or maybe they are someone from another culture or another country, perhaps even one that we were raised to hate or to fear. Or maybe they have a wound like that chicken that had the little tiny blemish. But we can see there's something wrong with them. There's a flaw there. There's something that makes them vulnerable and how that scares us as well. And maybe that vulnerability is even some sin, a very obvious sin. You can fill in your own blank for the sin. And so often we church folks, like the little hens, we start to peck at it. Can you believe they? I can't believe he. And peck and peck. And we chase them away, or perhaps we peck them to death. In this sermon series on dinner with Jesus, we hope to learn a better way, a different way, the way of Christ A way of welcome and hospitality that makes room not only for the sinner, but for the other, the strangers and the strange ones, those who are from different places and different beliefs and different ways of life. And can we make room for them at the table? Here's what Jesus did in our story from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Beginning in verse 36, Jesus was invited to a party, a party at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And if you're not familiar with Pharisees, they were not religious leaders officially like the priests or the scribes, but they had created this other religious class of very pious, very self-righteous group who wanted to not only follow the law, but create other laws to help you keep the law, and then laws to help you keep those laws as well. It was never-ending. And they were much like the little hens that when they saw someone different, they were afraid. If they saw someone with a wound in their life, they were the ones who would peck and peck. But this guy, Simon the Pharisee, invites Jesus to his house with perhaps not honest intentions. In verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. Very Precious, costly, priceless thing, this alabaster jar. But notice what we're told about this woman. We don't know her name. Even Luke's account paints her in sort of a stranger type category. She is outside, she is a marginal person. She's from the fringe of society. It describes her as a woman, but not just a woman, a sinner. What's her sin? We do not know. But her sin has labeled her with this scarlet letter, a big S for sin, not Superman, but sinful man. And everybody knows it. And Luke shares that this woman has come in, and in verse 38, she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet, with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. This is such an intimate, intimate moment. She is touching Jesus, wetting his feet with the very salty tears from her eyes. She's a woman, she's a sinner, and she has completely surrendered herself at the feet of Jesus, and her tears are bathing him, she's drying him, she's touching him, she's breaking every cultural taboo imaginable. She's connecting with Jesus. In verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, this is an internal monologue, he thought to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who it and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Notice the condemnation, condemnation for the sinful woman, but also condemnation for Jesus. What kind of a man is this? We were told it by Jesus earlier in Luke chapter 7 that the Son of Man comes eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nothing but disdain and hate for Jesus. This Pharisee has judged him and he's judged her and he's found them wanting. And he, of course, is righteous enough to know the difference. But Jesus, aware of his inner thoughts, in verse 40, begins to speak. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. It's not so nice the way that's worded, by the way. It's not like, oh, please let me hear. It's almost like he's talking to a servant. Speak. A certain creditor, Jesus explains, a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose, the one for whom... He canceled the greater debt. It's almost like he doesn't really want to answer the question. The answer is obvious, but he doesn't like it, we think. And he doesn't say something nice again. He goes, I suppose the one with the greater debt. He doesn't like this story from the beginning to the end. He doesn't like the idea of canceling debt, for one thing, much less canceling two different debts of such great difference, but canceling them both equally? And Jesus' question is, who would be more appreciative? Who would love this the most? And who would have the most love in their heart for the one forgiving the debt? (sighs) Simon, you can just hear him. That's not in the Bible. That's in my head. (sighs) I suppose the one with the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus is recounting for her all of these different forms of hospitality that were expected in the ancient world that Jesus lived in. You come into a stranger's house and you you anoint their head with oil. You greet them with a holy kiss. You wash their feet dirty from the journey. That was the espan the, the or the uban of Jesus' day. And so this woman comes into Jesus' his presence and does for him all of the things that the host failed to do. She has shown hospitality. She, the sinner, has shown welcome. She, the lost one, has done what is right and righteous. It's such a turn of expectations. And then Jesus turns again and says, to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you go in peace notice the difference between what the pharisee offers and what jesus we talked about this in our small group online last tuesday the difference between condemnation and conviction jesus eats with the sinners not to tell them it's okay to be a sinner but to convict them to change conviction leads to possibilities condemnation is what the pharisee offers and condemnation only puts up barriers it stops us from moving forward and so jesus invites us to consider who are you today in this story are you simon the pharisee who offers barriers and roadblocks to the lost to the marginalized people in your life Are you like Simon who offers condemnation that pushes people away or pecks at their wounds? Or are you like Jesus who creates a safe space to bring in new and strange people into the flock? A safe space that creates an opportunity for the ointment of grace to be applied to the lost, salve for the wounds of this world. Or perhaps you're like the woman. Maybe that's whom you identify with the most today. And you come here, maybe not even by invitation, but perhaps just looking for Jesus. And you wonder will you be welcome at this table? Will you be welcomed into the party and the fellowship? Many years ago, I had the opportunity to attend an installation. Service for a pastor. It was a very prominent church, very historic, lots of doctors and lawyers and politicians and people of high power positions in the community. And they were very proud of the opportunity to install a new pastor. They even invited the local newspaper to come and snap photographs. And it was a very Fancy service, and afterwards, an even fancier fellowship. They had a social hall down below, and they had set out this incredibly posh display of food with beautiful flowers and silver and gold even on the tables and real plates, which in the U.S., that's a big thing at churches. If you have real plates, it's real important. And they were so excited. They said, Pastor, you come to the front of the line and be the first to get your food. Which I'm sure he was probably happy because the line stretched around the corner and down the hall and into the sanctuary. And so this new pastor made his plate. And just as he was finished, to the back door of the social hall, a side entrance from the outside, came this guy named Ronnie. Ronnie had some special needs, some, something mentally was broken in him, but he was also the notorious community drunk. He was what we would call semi-homeless. He would stay at different people's houses, but had no house of his own, and he comes in the door still reeking from the alcohol from the night before, dirty, smelly. And he was an African-American guy, and this was, was, an, was an all very, very, very white church in the South, in the U.S. And as soon as he walked in the door, I could hear the head of the deacons stood up, and he saw the scene. He saw the pastor. He saw Ronnie, and he said, someone get his black ASS out of here. He's going to ruin the whole thing. And in a huff he stood up and began stomping right towards this man who had walked in the door, but he was too late. This new pastor had intercepted Ronnie. And he gave Ronnie his own plate of food. And he showed him to the head of the table, the special seat reserved for him, and sat him down and he he took a towel and wiped some of the sweat from the man's brow. It was quite hot that day. And he sat down and he made sure that Ronnie knew he could eat this food. And, and I remember he, he got up after a few moments and he began to make the rounds, shaking hands, meeting the dignitaries. The photographer was flashing, and the chairman of the deacons pulled him aside and said, what's wrong with you? This is not we, what we brought you here to do. Pointing at Ronnie. And the pastor said, if not for this, why then am I here? And if not for Ronnie, who am I here for? Friends, I leave you with that story as we prepare for the Lord's Supper together. What are you here for in life? More importantly, who are you here for? Who have you come to bring life to? Who can you welcome to the table? Who can you make room for in your own life and welcome into your own sacred space? Are we, again, more like Jesus or more like Simon the Pharisee? Would you pray with me as we prepare? Lord, we come to the table unworthy to eat. For we too are sinners and we too fall short of your glory. But praise you, O God, that you have made room at the table for us. And so we now ask that by these powerful symbols of cup and loaf that you would remind us again of our calling to Welcome the stranger, love the sinner, make room for the marginalized, and welcome at the table all who are willing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.